Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. To Weekend Warriors, the weekly podcast about foreign affairs. I'm Essie Cup. I want to start this week by telling you about Moisha Taube. He was born in 1927 in Krakow, Poland, and he studied music as a young boy. Moisha is a cantor, he's an academic, he's a musician. In 1939, he and his family were taken by the Nazis, and in 1942, He and his father were assigned to the Krakow Plowsaw concentration camp, while his mother and sister were sent to their deaths. Dozens of his extended family members were murdered. He and his father were saved in 1945 by Oskar Schindler, whose story is, of course, told in the 1993 film Schindler's List. Moshe survived that most horrifying chapter in history to go on to become a celebrated singer and cantor at a Pittsburgh synagogue. He survived the Holocaust only to watch some 80 years later a depraved murderer enter a synagogue in his community saying he wanted all Jews to die in America. That man killed 11 people. Moshe reflected this week on the massacre saying, this kind of evil makes me think of the Holocaust and how people can be so cruel that there is so much evil in the world still. It's a thought many had, I'm sure, but... For Jews around the world, anti-Semitism is not shocking. It is not unfathomable. In fact, it's mundane. It's a fact of life. And it's on the rise around the world. Here in the U.S., the Anti-Defamation League reports a 57% rise in anti-Semitic incidents in 2017. 57% in one year. That includes bomb threats, assaults, vandalism, anti-Semitic posters, literature found on college campuses, I want to talk about all of this. Uh, I'm joined now by the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt. Uh, Jonathan, first, thank you for coming on to have this conversation. And I'm, I'm so sorry for the Jews of Pittsburgh's tree of life and the grief that they're experiencing. Well, look, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, it's interesting. I'm speaking to you after literally just having gotten off a plane. I spent the day yesterday in Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, it was pretty wrenching. I attended funerals, memorial services, paid respects uh, to the families of those who died and had more conversations than I can count that ended with people just sobbing. Oh. I, 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 very, I bet. Very tough day. What, is the, what is the attitude less than, less than a week out uh, of, this, of this massacre? Is it, is it fear? Is it sadness? Is it defiance? What, what would you say sort of describes the attitude in that community? Well, definitely, I think, you know, I sat with Mayor Peduto in his office, and uh, I think he kind of put it best. He said, you know, we are grieving. Yeah. We're grieving as a community. And focusing on the victims is the appropriate thing to do. I mean, 11 people were killed, 
And as you sort of alluded to in your opening, whereas I do believe anti-Semitism is a fact of life for Jews around the world and has been for millennia, this was in and of itself the most lethal and violent attack on the American Jewish community in our history. I mean, George Washington, when he was president, visited a synagogue, you know, in the 1700s. And in all of those years, in all of that time, we've literally never had an attack as homicidal and horrible as this one. It is stunning. Um, And I want to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in the rest of the world, but let's stick with the U.S. just for a second. Um, sure. From from Charlottesville, where where white supremacists shouted, the Jews will not replace us, to some of the anti-Semitic campaign ads we saw during the 2016 elections and, and this election, to uh, trolls, you know, on social media. It feels so heightened. Do you yeah. connect that to politics in any way right now? Well, I think there are several factors that are driving this. Okay. So first, first the rise in anti-Semitism. So at the ADL, we track attitudes yeah. as well as incidents. We've been tracking anti-Semitic attitudes, literally SC, since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of good news. In the 1960s, when we started doing this, the attitudes were close to 30%, meaning mm-hmm. that upwards of 30% of all Americans held what you would consider classic anti-Semitic beliefs that the Jews were behind all the world's wars, that the Jews controlled Wall Street, that the Jews were behind conspiracies to undermine America, literally, upwards of 30%. We did our last uh, analysis, our last survey in 2016. We actually have another one underway right now. And at that, in 2016, the, the number was about 14%. So in the, you know, the, you know, the almost 60 years, Attitudes have dropped, and anti-Semitic attitudes have dropped by, let's say, 50%. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news. Now, the bad news, this, the rise in anti-Semitic incidents, and we've been tracking those since the 1970s, um, which, again, as you pointed out, it includes... So hate crimes are, are misdemeanors or felonies committed against an individual or an institution based on what the law calls an immutable characteristic, like religion or race, or national origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the ADL, we pay attention to hate crimes, and we, also, we track incidents, meaning not just acts of violence or vandalism, but also harassment. Like when, a Jewish, when Jewish worshipers walk out of a synagogue, get screamed at, or when a Jewish child gets bullied at school yeah. by kids who say, I'm going to commit a holocaust on you, mm-hmm. or you know, I could go on. Yeah. So... That's worth noting because our, our definition is a bit broader than, say, the FBI. So whereas the FBI tracked a 5% increase in overall hate crimes in 2016, the majority of crimes against people of religion are attacking Jews. It's well over 50%. In fact, our numbers for 2017 of 57% was the single largest spike we have ever seen in four decades of tracking this data. That includes, number one, acts of harassment, which were up like 90%. Number two, vandalism, which was up close to 60%. And acts of violence, like assault. Now, those were actually down. In 2016, the number was about 36. In 2017, we tracked 19 acts. So that seemed like the silver lining until this weekend when we saw literally 
the most violent attack in our history. So the, the trends are disturbing, and I should make one last point. The overall 57% increase that we saw in 17 SE, that was preceded by a 34% spike in 2016. And those two in increases, they came after almost a 15-year decline. I mean, it would so be very hard not to hear that and think about politics, right? I mean, what, what if any connection do you make to, you know, the 2016 change in our politics? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few items that are, like, driving it. So now that you understand the data, number one, I think the political atmosphere has absolutely contributed to these conditions. Um, the reason why, you know, again, incidents and attitudes are now heading in different directions is because extremists feel emboldened today. And whereas the vast majority of Americans, I can say empirically, are not anti-Semitic, because the data shows me that, the fact of the matter is there is a minority who have very bigoted, hostile views about Jews, and they feel more empowered to act than ever before. Um, and they're taking their cues from the political conversation. You know, when white supremacists find that their words are retweeted by political candidates, yeah. or when extremists see that their, their, uh, their, their language finds its way into the speeches of elected officials, we shouldn't be surprised that they interpret mm -hmm. that as a license to operate. Um, and so I think that is a big driver. And when leaders don't lead, you know, it sends in, uh, it's, it makes an impact. And what I mean by that is young people, right, they follow the lead of their leaders. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the 57%, we saw a nearly 90% increase of anti-Semitic incidences on college campuses. And are you ready for this? Mm. Almost a 100% increase of such incidences in K-12 schools. Oh, wow. So... Look, whether you are the president of the United States or the president of a university or the, you know, the president of your local PTA, if you don't speak out swiftly and strongly, con consistently and clearly when anti-Semitism happens, you shouldn't be surprised when it happens again and again. And so this is not in of itself a political message, but our politicians do have a responsibility to consider, you know, their obligation to the Jewish community and, frankly, to the country. Before we switch uh, over to, to global anti-Semitism, I just want your thought on um, evangelicals. This is a, a population and a political voting bloc that has uh, been largely supportive of, of the Jews, of a Jewish state, of Zionism, of, you know, they were, they were largely in favor of moving Israel's uh, embassy to Jerusalem, have they been, in your mind, a little too silent in terms of the rise of anti-Semitism over the past two years? Well, hmm, interesting question. I mean, the way that I would think about it, the way that I think about these things, I think everyone is responsible. Mm. So whether you're evangelical or a Catholic, a Muslim or an atheist, a Buddhist or a Sikh or, or some agnostic person, like, I think all of us have a collective responsibility yeah. uh, on these issues of pluralism and tolerance. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the way you pray or the way you vote should uh, influence the way you value your fellow Americans. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk about the world. This is a this is a podcast about foreign affairs. So uh, I will run through some statistics you well know because they are from ADL's Global 100 report, at least the last yep. one uh, I had access to on, on anti-Semitism around the world. Yeah. You can check my numbers, but uh, yep. I have a 74% anti-Semitic attitude in the Middle East and Northern Africa, 34% in Eastern Europe, 24% in Western Europe. Um, yeah. To my ears, that sounds alarmingly high. Is that sort of a status quo? Uh, it is. Well, so there are a few pieces in that, right? So the Global 100 is a survey we initially did a few years ago to, to gauge anti-Semitic attitudes around the world. Yeah. So we could finally contextualize what anecdotally and empirically understand what anecdotally we, we, we felt was true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the data is alarming. It's somewhere between alarming and appalling. Yeah. So in the Middle East, you know, where Jews have had a continuous presence for thousands of years, mm-hmm. the anti-Semitic attitudes are, um, uh, are, are indescribably high. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, I think that's because uh, for decades, and, I mean, look, my wife herself came to the United States as a political refugee from Iran, mm-hmm. where Jews have lived for thousands of years. And my wife and my in-laws and their family tell stories about the long, persistent cultural anti-Semitism that has existed in Iran even though it is itself, the Iranian people could be the most tolerant people in the entire region when it comes to Jews. Mm -hmm. But after the founding of the State of Israel, um, after 1948, the governments in the region really began to conflate uh, in their propaganda and in their policies their own Jewish communities with the State of Israel. And that manifested in pogroms and violence committed against Jews in places like Iraq, where the Jews had lived again for thousands of years, in Syria and other parts of the world. And Jews fled those countries in large part uh, to Israel to escape that kind of violence. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certainly still pockets of tolerance. Again, you know, the Iranian people are a tolerant one. Morocco is an incredibly pluralistic country. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I got I to gotta share that if you picked up the paper of any of the mid- in Middle Eastern capitals, you would be stunned at what you see in the political on the editorial pages, in terms yeah. of political cartoons, the articles describing, you know, global Zionist conspiracies. Mm-hmm. It's some of the worst possible stuff. Yeah. Um, so if I think about global anti-Semitism, SC, I think there are three drivers worth noting. Okay. Or three, it comes okay. in three forms. So number one, I think there is, and all of these can be, you could consider of a political orientation because they're pushed by individuals and political groups and governments, as it were, you know, to advance an agenda. So number one, I think there is a sort of, as I was just uh, sort of talking to, there's sort of a Muslim anti-Semitism mm-hmm. pushed up by Islamists, political Islamists, that again tries to conflate Israel and Jews, mm-hmm. and uh, it's used to radicalize populations. ISIS does this, the Islamic Republic of Iran does this, Hezbollah and Hamas do this. It's, it's horif- horrifying, and if you look at most of the violence uh, committed against Israeli civilians, it's often justified this way. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you have a kind of a right-wing extremist trend, which is very prevalent in Eastern Europe, where you have white nationalists and white supremacists who have always been persistent in Europe, and I don't need to... You, your story about Moshe Taub in the beginning of the peace, you know, this was intrinsic in that. Yeah. We see the right-wing, the far-right extremism in many of the Eastern European countries with elected officials and political parties who sometimes are actually in coalition with governments. 
And then in the third variant, I would say, is sort of a radical leftism. And you see this in particular in the U.K. in Jeremy Corbyn, whose unapologetic anti-Semitism is, is, is particularly appalling. Um, and he conflates, again, Israel with Jews, and the people around him use a kind of language and, uh, you know, phrases that are, are... There's a reason why the Jewish community in the U.K., you know, recent polling suggested up to 40% might consider leaving the country if Jeremy right. Corbyn were elected prime minister. I was so, reading that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. Saying, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just yeah. reading that, and and a, a large majority are considering going to Germany. Believe it or not. Um, yeah. And just this week, British Jews held vigils to honor the 11 people killed um, at the Tree of Life synagogue, and one woman um, who was interviewed for a story on this. Uh, Julia Kaufman, a 34-year-old mother of two who attended this vigil, said, For many of us, America has been seen as a sanctuary, the safest place for Jews. That is until Saturday. Pittsburgh is a bleak reminder. Nowhere's really safe at the moment. Um, and as you mentioned, a poll last year found that almost a third of Britain's 300,000 Jews have considered leaving during the past two years due to growing anti-Semitism there. Um, and right. more than a third admitted that out of fear, they conceal any public signs indicating they are Jewish. This is 2018. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you stories about uh, friends that I have in the UK and in fr- family mm. that I have in France, people I've gotten to know in this job in places like Sweden, Belgium, even Germany itself. Mm where you have Jews who won't wear a Star of David around their neck, Jews who've taken them as a zote off their doors, mm. Jews who won't wear a kippah in public because they're afraid. So it's, um, you know, it, it, here's the funny thing, right? Like, that being said, because there is this anxiety, and it's out there, and it's particularly real in the U.K., uh, it, as a reminder, like, this isn't political. So what, it's not like uh, neither side of the political spectrum honestly, can claim a monopoly on morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are worrying trends on both extremes. And yet, you know, the fact of the matter is as well, Jews have lived peacefully, coexisted wonderfully for thousands of years with Christians and Muslims. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Islamophobia is as much of our enemy as anti-Semitism, right? And kind of a radicalism is the, is the enemy of anyone who believes in the value of sort of moderation. But th- the problem is that anti-Semitism is often the canary in the coal mine. And it typically augurs much worse, you know, and, and horrible things. And so that's why we have to take it deadly seriously, no matter what our religion or faith might be. So how do we combat hate? Well, at the ADL, we have a sort of, we have a theory of change, which both is a defense and offense. So certainly when our organization was founded over 100 years ago in 1913, right around the time of the Leo Frank lynching, yeah. should, do you know that story, Essie, or is it worth sharing? I do, but go ahead. No, share it for sure. Yeah. 1913, a man named Leo Frank, a Jewish American from New York, went down to Georgia to manage his family's pencil factory. And it was a time of widespread anti-Semitism in the United States. So Jews couldn't attend many universities, couldn't live in many areas, were kept out of many professions, were regularly discriminated against in restaurants and hotels. It was just, and there was tremendous defamation and slander in the media. And so at this time, this guy went down, he's managing his family's business. A young Christian girl is found sexually assaulted and strangled to death on the property. And so immediately, immediately, 
you know, the finger is pointed at the Jew. Mm. And quickly, uh, Leo Frank is, is, um, is uh, what, uh, he's arrested, he's found guilty in what you consider like a sham trial, and he's sentenced to death. The governor, because he clearly didn't have due process, yeah. the governor intervenes, commutes his sentence from the death penalty to life imprisonment, and the mob is so enraged by that act of leniency, they tear Leo Frank from his jail cell and they hang him from a tree. Yeah. And the entire town comes out for the hanging. They barbecue underneath his body. You know, and they give out postcards of the event as souvenirs. So it's a particularly disgusting event. And by the way, there were a number of lynchings, almost majority of which were committed against African Americans. But uh, this particularly grotesque uh, event really catalyzed the creation of the Anti-Defamation League. Mm -hmm. And so when the founders created this organization, they wrote a charter, like a manifesto, for this new group. And they, and they wrote in it, they wrote in it that the, the words that we still use as our mission statement 100 years later, that the purpose would be to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. Mm -hmm. So to break that down, the idea of stopping the defamation of the Jewish people well, that made a ton of sense in light of what had just happened. And the Jews needed to fight anti-Semitism. What's interesting, though, is they also said, they also said to seek justice and fair treatment to all. So, a hundred years ago, the Jews in the United States, they didn't have economic resources or political connections or just the social standing that we have today. But they still felt that their fate was intertwined with the fate of others. Mm -hmm. And that they would, America would be good for its Jews, but it would be also be good for its other minorities. And that claim was an audacious claim for a weak and uh, small minority to say yeah. in 1913. But the theory of change for ADL for 100 years has been fight anti-Semitism relentlessly, rigorously, without giving it any quarter, but also fight for others and lock arms because our fate, again, is intertwined with those of other marginalized groups. So we basically, we use advocacy. We try to change laws to the courts and Congress. Mm -hmm. We use education. We're one of the largest providers in the United States of anti-bias, anti-hate content in schools. And we work with law enforcement to track hate crimes, to investigate hate crimes, and to train them. We train 15,000 officers every year in hate and extremism and how to deal with it. Well, so this has been, approach. yeah, this has been really, really illuminating. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so, so much for joining Weekend Warriors. I really appreciate hearing your, your voice on this. Essie, I'm grateful for the coverage and uh, really appreciate you shining a light on it. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to Weekend Warriors. The rise of anti-Semitism around the world came into stark relief this week when a white supremacist killed 11 Jews at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Joining me now is CNN national security analyst Sam Vinograd. Sam, um, back in April, the Cantor Center for the Study of Contemporary European Jewry at Tel Aviv University issued a report on anti-Semitic attitudes around the world and concluded that, quote, Europe's largest Jewish communities are experiencing a normalization and mainstreaming of anti-Semitism not seen since the Second World War. Now, that study blames the surge on, quote, the constant rise of the extreme right, a heated anti-Zionist discourse in the left, 
accompanied by harsh anti-Semitic expressions and radical Islamism. Uh, I was just talking to Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL uh, about this global rise in anti-Semitism. What's your take? How is it that neo-Nazism has flourished so significantly around the world since World War II? Essie, thanks for having me. I think in the first instance, that report is spot on in that, unfortunately, there are so many different flavors of anti-Semitism. In this country, this past week, we saw white supremacy as one of the motivating factors behind the brutal massacre at the synagogue uh, in Pittsburgh. But there are many other kinds of anti-Semitism on the rise in Europe. You look at a country like Hungary, where we have the far right, where the president ran a re-election campaign really against George Soros, a Jewish financier who is actually a subject of President Trump's ire as well. You have that. You have Jeremy Corbyn in the UK on the left who has other reasons, his party, for pillaring the Jews, including this whole narrative that's been really frequent throughout history, that Jews are greedy and Mm. stealing all the money. This was something that Adolf Hitler ran on um, and gained support on in Germany during World War II. So all these different, really abhorrent flavors of anti-Semitism are coming together at a time when we have instantaneous communication. Now, remember, the, ho- the Holocaust was perpetrated. Six million Jews were murdered, including most of my father's family, without a single tweet being sent, a single Facebook post, no social media yeah. communication. But the role of propaganda then was key. And now we have that same platform for pa- propaganda, but it's instantaneous. So these horrible messages get amplified so quickly and reach so many people. And that's, I think, drawing more supporters and normalizing the rhetoric. When I was growing up, you know, Essie, I can still remember the name of the boy who made an anti-Semitic remark to me when I was seven and a half years old in Connecticut. That's how poignant that memory still is to me. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a Jew who has not had an anti-Semitic episode in their life. But we haven't heard the same rhetoric used openly as frequently until you go on Twitter and you just start doing a search and so many awful things pop up. I do think that has helped to normalize it. Yeah. As has, frankly, elected officials and officials in a very senior capacity spreading conspiracy theories about various groups, whether it's George Soros you know, funding migrant caravans yeah. or George Soros funding protesters who are anti-Kavanaugh or in Hungary, the Jews helping immigrants quote-unquote, invade the country. These leaders using these kinds of conspiracy theories normalizes them again, and I think that's a a difference that we're seeing over the last few years. It's a really good point, and I want to talk about social media in a second. But first, you you mentioned some of the political uh, leaders pushing some of this stuff. Uh, A flyer was sent to voters Monday. Monday, that's after the massacre in Pittsburgh, from the Republican candidate Ed Sharamut's campaign attacking his opponent, a Democratic state congressman, Matthew Lesser. Uh, The ad uh, argued, the flyer argued he would be bad for senior citizens, featured a cartoon-like image of Lesser, who is Jewish, with a wide-eyed grin clutching a wad of $100 bills. Now, Sharamut has since apologized, but this is in Connecticut, where I live, where you're from. Uh, How does this still happen? It still happens because, unfortunately, anti-Semitism is never eradicated, just like racism or hatred is never eradicated. It lies dormant, 
And the truth is, Essie, and I feel really strongly about this because, as you know, this is personal for me and that this was an attack against my faith, the Jewish yeah. community. But I really feel like this is personal for me, too, just as an American, because you have people that are anti-Semitic, that have that hatred in their hearts and that believe these false narratives about the Jews, that they're, again, that we're greedy and we steal all the money. There are horrible phrases that I used to hear people say, which I won't repeat here, about what it's like for a Jew to steal money and things of that nature. But if you're if you're filled with that kind of hatred, if it's not against the Jews, it's going to be against someone else. <laughs> so mm. hatred finds a home and mm-hmm. an object and a scapegoat, regardless of whether it's the Jews in one instance, African-Americans, which are the most frequent object of hate crimes in this country or against another faith. Yeah. So how many cartoons are there about other minority groups? We heard the president of the United States and I'm going to go there, mm-hmm. really make disparaging comments about the Democratic candidate for governor in Florida called him a thief. He failed to say his name. He talked yeah. about his white um, opponent's college education. It was so demonizing and degrading. So whether it's against the Jews or it's mm. against one other minority, these images become more normalized yeah. the more that we let any kind of hatred uh, get, get a voice. Well, and you've talked about some of the horrid, awful things um, people have said about the Jewish community. Some are wondering if it's um, important to address some of the less obvious ways that we talk uh, mm-hmm. about about politics, about about religion. Um, Sam B, Samantha B, Comedy Central, um, said this week that terms like quote coastal elites, globalists, and Hollywood liberals are dog whistles for anti-Semitism. What's your what's your take on that? I agree with her. And I think that we have to have an honest conversation. And by we, I mean the American uh, people about what terms are offensive. Mm -hmm. And a term like globalist, there's no gray area. Right. It is used for a reason. And there are so many names or even just phrases that are used that. People say, oh, I didn't really mean it. I'm not really anti-Semitic. It's just a term. Well, guess what? It's not just a term. Those terms are leading to more violence. That is a fact. As you mentioned um, previously, anti-Semitic incidences are up, what, 57% over the last year? In K-12 schools, they've more than doubled. Those dog whistles, which people say they didn't mean, are translating into actual violence and actual incidences. So why wouldn't we as a country, regardless of your religious background or your racial background, want to just ask, is this term offensive in any way? Could I in any way be contributing to more violence or more hatred? Every American, particularly the president, should be thinking about how we can do better and really tone down any rhetoric that might be offensive, because, again, yeah. it, leads, it leads to violence. Well, and, uh, you know, I'll confess as a, as a conservative, I've used the term Hollywood liberals. I've used the term coastal elites. Um, to me, you know, it didn't have any of those connotations, but it's important to have this conversation and start asking those questions. And I'm, I'm glad we are. Um, I want to talk about Louis Farrakhan. As recently as two weeks ago, he essentially likened Jews to termites on Twitter. Uh, Why does Farrakhan get a seat at anyone's table anymore? It truly boggles my mind that he gets a seat anywhere. And I cannot imagine that at this point, Twitter, you know, has not found a reason to shut down most of the people that are amplifying his content because many of them are engaged in targeted harassment 
against a particular yeah. religious group. But calling Jews bugs or termites or vermin is something that's been quite familiar, unfortunately, throughout our history, particularly during the Holocaust, during the pogroms, and even when Jews came to this country. Yeah. This whole notion of the Jews as subhuman is something that, again, we're just all too familiar with. And we see that kind of rhetoric applied to the Jews by Farrakhan, but we're also seeing it applied to other minority groups that are trying to come into this country. And that really worries me, mm-hmm. this whole mm-hmm. idea that there are you know, insects or vermin of any kind, and that relates to some minority group. As the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, frankly, that just brings up such worrisome images for me. And whenever we hear that kind of language used, whether by Farrakhan or by others, even if it's to describe a totally different group, I think we have to be aware of the consequences we've seen throughout history for that. Yeah. Um, As to Twitter, I mean, you're right. Twitter has said it's not suspending Farrakhan from, from the site, saying that his tweet, this is a quote, Louis Farrakhan's tweet comparing Jews to termites is not in violation of the company's policies. The policy on dehumanizing language has not yet been implemented. Do you well, uh, do you think that social media has uh, right start implementing it like five minutes ago? Um, do you think social media though has has a double standard or or maybe a blind spot for anti-Semitism because it's rampant on social media? It's rampant, but so is other dehumanizing language against other groups. And I worked in tech. I know how critical it is to platforms and to tech companies to stay as, quote unquote, neutral platforms and not be the arbiters of content. Sure. But we also know that hate speech, which is not illegal, Mm -hmm. translates into hate crimes and violence much more quickly in a digital age because you can just reach more people and inspire them or direct them to act that much more quickly. So I think that Twitter, along with everybody else, needs to take a second and say, okay, this is hate speech. Maybe it's not illegal, but this dehumanizing language is inspiring activity, and therefore we need to shut it down. And look, if they have not updated their policies yet, please do so quickly, because we know that how many Twitter followers does President Trump have? You know, that, that alone should tell us that we need to act quickly or Viktor Orban in Hungary, or Jeremy, you know, the the Labour Party and the far left in the UK, we know it translates into violence. But, you know, one other part of social media and countering violent extremism that we haven't talked about is use of counter narratives. So on the flip side, something like Twitter is a really important tool for countering Mm -hmm. racism and anti-Semitism when you try to push out these counter narrative messages to tamp down the racist rhetoric or the anti-Semitic rhetoric. So I, I know that various government agencies view Twitter as a platform for pushing out those counter narratives, which would be a flip side of this. It's a really good point, too. Um, Sam Vinograd, thank you so much for joining me this week on Weekend Warriors. Really, really appreciate your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this conversation. Okay, that's it for us this week on Weekend Warriors. We'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.